please be seated and turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, we will read the first seven verses together. Luke 2, 1 to 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In, in my parents' home, and, and you might uh, uh, have, have something similar in your home, uh, they, of course, loved Uh, decorating for Christmas, and there were decorations all throughout the house, which generally diminished as we got older, you know, that's really exciting the first time, and increasingly it's like, we can do without the plastic snowmen. But right in the center of our home, there was a a big, uh, lovely fireplace, and next to that would go the Christmas tree, and along it would go the stockings, and of course, up on the mantle would go the nativity scene. And uh, there were many pieces in my parents' nativity scene, right? You had the shepherds all coming from one direction from the field, and you had the wise men coming from the other direction uh, from uh, the east, and then you had the angels sort of affixed to pins overhead and the star, and all of this was centering on that little stable with that perfect gable that all stables had in Bethlehem at the time. And... Underneath, of course, you had the animals, and they're all looking inward. And then in the middle, you have that very familiar picture of Mary and Joseph leaned in to the center, where you have that manger tilted forward to perfectly display the baby Jesus right in the middle. And everything in the nativity scene, and then almost in the rest of the decoration surrounding that, seems to point to that infant right at the center in this prominent Place. Now, in our passage this morning, Luke seems to be giving us the opposite sense. He starts at the center of the world, and then he moves further and further away. He goes down to the darkest, dirtiest, most humble corner of the world. Luke takes us from the greater to the lesser. And you can see that in the names that he gives us. We go from rulers to subjects. We go from people who are commanding others at will to people who are being acted upon, who are forced to obey the whims of others. We start with Caesar Augustus sitting in his palace at Rome. Now, Julius Caesar, of course, is the one who brought the name Caesar into imperial rule. And he claimed rule for himself, but was very quickly assassinated. Augustus, his nephew, was the one who really created the role of the Roman emperor. He secured power, he consolidated power, he declared that he had divine status, and he reigned for 40 years. He was the first true Roman emperor, and also the longest reigning. 
If Rome has been the historic standard for total dominant power for all of history, Augustus was the standard for total dominant power within Rome, and he would easily get his name on a short list of rulers who had the greatest impact in human history. In our passage this morning, Augustus is demonstrating that power through one of the most tyrannical and grandiose gestures of dictatorial rule imaginable, a census. And that is only a little bit of an exaggeration. You'll remember that David was punished for carrying out a similar census in Israel, wanting to show the extent of his reign and his power. Censuses were ways that rulers could show how mighty they were, essentially cataloging all of their citizens, all of their lands, all of their able fighters, showing how great they were. And even that census itself, the act of carrying it out, demonstrates their power over people. Everyone in the empire is forced to go. And some, we see, are forced to go to great lengths just to get their name on the appropriate list to be counted by their rulers. That long journey that many subjects like Joseph and Mary would have had to take was a reminder of how insignificant they were, how in control they were, how much they had to move at the whims of greater people. So Luke begins with Augustus, and then notice that he says a decree goes out from him. So Luke is almost visually moving us out from Rome, from the center of the world, and he takes us in particular to the province of Syria, where Quirinius is governor. Quirinius would have been responsible for carrying out this census in the many lands that comprised the Assyrian or the Syrian province, including Judea. So Mary and Joseph are just two little people among this almost herd of people being moved around by Quirinius on behalf of Augustus because of this decree throughout the empire. And this uh, decree takes them from Galilee in the north, from the town of Nazareth, to Bethlehem because, of course, Bethlehem is where David was born and Joseph must be registered with David's family. From a secular historical perspective, if we were to stop and look at David, I think you would be able to say that he was a competent ruler, that he was a shrewd general. He was successful enough to have a secure reign, but he failed to establish that kind of lasting kingdom or strong empire that we see from people like Caesar Augustus. His dynasty did last a long time, but we see that it, his kingdom continually shrank until it just became one part of the province of greater empires. At the time of this census, it's not a descendant of David, but it's Herod, the puppet king of Caesar, who is sitting on the throne over Judea. And if Joseph himself is any evidence, this carpenter traveling on a donkey with his betrothed Mary, unable to secure a place to sleep in Bethlehem, then it seems like the house of David has been reduced to obscurity and poverty. So, David, uh, Luke directs our attention to David, then to his poor descendant, Joseph. We're a long way from Caesar Augustus in Rome, and then Luke goes one step lower. 
Joseph's betrothed Mary gives birth to her firstborn son, born in the midst of a migration, without a home, laid to sleep in an animal trough. And this is the birth of Jesus. Luke has moved us from the seat of power at the center of the world down to this poor and lowly scene. It's almost like Luke has picked up our nativity scene from off the mantelpiece. He's put the Roman palace there, and then he's gone and carried the nativity down to the furnace room or to that back mud room, that hallway where we truck the dirt into the house. In these short verses, Luke wants to orient our perspective to consider the amazing humility of Jesus' birth. Now, this humility is all the more striking because if we know the promises of Scripture, we can see that Luke is at the same time moving in the opposite direction, turning this whole hierarchy from Caesar Augustus to Jesus right on its head. Now, you remember that Derek mentioned really quickly last week in his Advent sermon that Jesus' birth was predicted by Daniel to take place in the time of Rome. We can see this in Daniel chapter 2, one of my favorite Christmas passages. Daniel chapter 2. This is a dream that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has. Daniel chapter 2, and we'll start with verses 32 to 35. Or 31 to 35. Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar what he dreamed. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Leave that, leave that open. Daniel says that this statue represents a succession of empires. We have Babylon, the great, beautiful golden head. And then we have Medo-Persia, its chest and its arms of silver. Then we have Greece, the bronze empire. And finally, Rome. Rome is the last in a line of kingdoms of diminishing splendor. Far from that golden, glorious head of Babylon. Rome is harsh. It is cold, built on strength and utility. But Daniel says that increasingly this kingdom has brittleness in it. Look at what Daniel says about the fourth kingdom in his vision. Look at verse 40. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these and as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And as the toes of its feet were partly of iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay." And in the days of those kings, God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. 
nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw a stone that was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. So Daniel says this fourth kingdom It's going to be of iron. It's going to be strong enough to break apart the other kingdoms. But then Daniel says, increasingly, this kingdom becomes mixed with clay. And its feet and toes, by the time we get to the bottom, shows a divided kingdom. As Rome gathers more and more provinces, Daniel says, this kingdom becomes like an unstable marriage. It can't hold together. And it is in the midst of this instability that a stone is cut by God. One stone. Start small, almost as small as a mustard seed, and it comes through and it rolls in, and yet it topples not just the feet, it topples every kingdom in the statue. It breaks apart every worldly kingdom. So if Caesar Augustus, on the one hand, represents this pinnacle of power in the Iron Kingdom, we see that that power is nothing compared to the stone cut by God. Now, of course, Daniel, along with the other prophets, whenever they mention an eternal kingdom, everyone knows that they are immediately talking about God's promises to David. David was the king after God's own heart. David loved God's law. He repented when he sinned. He trusted God in the most difficult circumstances. He loved God's glory more than his own. So he desired that God have a splendid temple built greater than his own palace. When he desired this, God promised that instead he would establish David's house. And we get that from 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 to 16. 2 Samuel 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom will be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So, we go by what Daniel said, Rome is little more than a setting established by God. This is what the world's going to look like when I keep my promises to David, when I roll in the stone. And these promises center around the birth of an offspring who comes from David and yet is greater than David, a descendant of David whom David could call Lord. Further prophets fill in the picture of what the Messiah could look like, and there at times seem to be things that are hard to reconcile. He's going to be from Galilee, and yet he's going to be from Bethlehem. He will be despised and rejected by men, and yet he will reign over them. So glorious and yet so humble. He will come and conquer, 
but his kingdom will be characterized by reconciliation and peace. So we see how Luke's passage this morning confronts us both with the incredible humility of Jesus' birth, but also calls us to look back through scripture through the lens of God's promises. Now we are looking at poor Augustus, the king of the brutal but brittle iron kingdom the last and least glorious of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And he, along with his governors, trying to hold together this kingdom of iron mixed with clay, unwittingly participate in God's fulfillment of his promises to his beloved king, David. Now we're looking at the town of David, the town where all of God's promises point towards. And their census has moved one of David's descendants from Galilee and Nazareth right to the right place so that all of God's promises could be kept. These seemingly prominent rulers are just setting the stage for the rolling in of the stone. The vision that, will, that has shown that God will not just shatter Rome, but every human power and stronghold against his kingdom. And so Zechariah, the father of John, can prophesy at Jesus' birth, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Those who knew God's word knew exactly what was happening. Our passage this morning confronts us with the question, how would we read this succession of names? Which of them is the greatest? Which of them seems least? Men have spent all of history trying to imitate Caesar Augustus. Long life and wealth and power. Most people would see that as an astounding feat. An astounding feat maybe just to be Quirinius. If I could just be one of the governors of a province in an empire like that, what power I would have. Compare that with a child surrounded by flies and manure and laid down in a trough. Abject poverty. But the visible humility of the manger is just an indication of the real humility of the birth of the Messiah. Before he took on flesh, Jesus ruled on a throne over all creation. The splendid temple of Solomon, the holy tabernacle, those were just copies of the magnificence of Jesus' heavenly throne room. And he closed his eyes on that heavenly splendor and opened them in the dirt and the dust of the manger in Bethlehem. But it is exactly this humility that makes Jesus an infinitely better king than Caesar. The angels sing glory to God and peace to men because Jesus is this king. A king who was offered a chance by the devil to have everything that Caesar Augustus had and more in the midst of hunger in the desert and he rejects it. A king who deserved all the power in the universe and yet traveled around with nowhere to lay his head. Healing and serving. And this culminated in his sacrificial death in our place on the cross. Jesus, who was born a pauper, died a criminal. That was the life on earth of the king of kings. So Luke brilliantly confronts us with two ways to read this passage. Now, if we were asked at the drop of a hat, would you choose Christ or Caesar? Very few of us would openly declare our allegiance to Rome. But how many of us have really chosen to treasure a king born in a manger as a greater king 
than an emperor in a royal palace with all the world and its pleasures at his feet. Jesus told us what it means to follow such a king. It means taking up a cross. He told us that where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. And it is perhaps very fitting that the Christmas holiday has become such a massive competition between the celebration of the birth of Jesus and rampant consumerism. If we are here to celebrate his birth, then we have to celebrate what his birth shows us, the humility of the king of kings, his choice to take a manger instead of a throne, and then to take up the cross so that he could honor his father and save his people. Because then he would reign forever as the lion of Judah who alone is worthy because he alone was the lamb who was slain. Contrast the promises of Christ, that kingdom when it grows and expands into a mountain that fills the whole earth. Contrast that with the splendor of the brittle Roman kingdom and the glory of Caesar Augustus who is now in hell. Mary herself recognizes that Jesus is the humble king to lift up a humble people and give them great promises. He is the one who scatters the proud. He is the one who helps the lowly. Mary sings in Luke 1, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever." Just as Jesus came himself to live in poverty and suffer and die, he comes to save a lowly people, to lift up the heads of the downtrodden, and he will lay low the proud. He is the stone that destroys kingdoms, and he builds his own eternal kingdom. He doesn't need us to be strong and powerful and wealthy and satisfied to help him hold on to his kingdom. That leaves us in the kingdoms that are knocked down. He is looking to populate the kingdom he can hold by his own salvation and power. And he is looking among the lowly and the humble and the meek who trust in his salvation. That is who will populate the kingdom of Jesus. That sounds great to us until it confronts us with the question of whether we want to humble ourselves and recognize our poverty and trust in Jesus. Or whether we would still like to have everything that Caesar had, everything his reign represented. And this is the choice Luke confronts us with as he presents us with the emperor of Rome, the governor of Syria, the king of Judea, and then the humble king of kings. But these names accomplish one more thing for Luke. The books written by Luke are full of names. Luke loves to tell us that things happened in such and such a day when so-and-so was doing such and such. He loves names and places and events. 
Kids, who loves names and places and events? Your favorite teacher, your history teacher. Historians love names and places and events, and Luke is a good historian. And Luke wants you to know that he's a good historian, not because he's proud, but because he wants you to know that what he's talking about really happened. These names of people and places are meant to remind us that Luke is documenting history. Your nativity scene might be sitting five feet from a giant Santa Claus ringing a bell and singing songs or a magic snowman whose nose lights up. It is so easy for us to lump our nativity in with our own Christmas mythology, to even see our church services and our carols as furniture for our Christmas nostalgia. Our faith becomes a part of our own personal storyline. My Christianity is a part of the big, wonderful story of me. It helps me understand myself. It helps me to live a better life. It keeps my life ordinary, uh, orderly. It, it numbs me to the harsh realities of the world. Luke didn't think that way. Luke knew what a myth was. He would have known how to write a play. He would have known how to write an epic poem. But a hundred years before Luke wrote this, the poet Virgil was hired to write an epic poem to give Rome a heroic identity. And he produced the Enid to give Rome a sense of confidence, a sense of who they were to feel good in the world. Luke would have known how to do that. He would have known what that was. But Luke was not a myth maker. First blush, Luke's writing seems a little bit more boring than that because Luke is writing precise, careful history full of facts which are either true or they're false. Luke knows these events actually really happened. But it's not a question of how you feel about them. It's not a question of what you like to take from them or how you enjoy them. These facts of what happened present you with realities that you have to reckon with and if you reckon with them, then they must change your life. Caesar Augustus Quirinius, these are names that historians know. They were real people. We know the dates of their reigns. That was a real time. We know Nazareth and Bethlehem, the Roman province of Syria. We know the city of Rome. You can go visit them. They are real places. Luke says it is at this real time, at this real place, the age of real people that a real child was born and that child was really God and man, was really savior and king. This was the beginning of his real, perfect, humble life that would lead him to an actual crucifixion that really took place and a real, actual, historic resurrection from the dead. Secular professors and news outlets love to talk about the pagan roots of December 25th or Christmas trees, or mistletoe. And yeah, all of that is just non-essential decor. That is furniture that we ourselves have contrived to work on our emotions. And you might enjoy it, and you might not enjoy it. It doesn't really matter. It's mythological. It belongs to you, how you feel, what you want. Jesus isn't. The birth of Christ isn't. It's not a piece of furniture for our holiday. It is a historical fact that must be reckoned with. Is it true for you? Or is Jesus true for you in the sense that things are allowed to be true for anybody nowadays? That he's just a part of your personal story. And your main ideas about Jesus are the ones that you know you like most about Jesus. You've decided which Jesus you're going to have. 
He might be the one that affirms your own actions and desires, the one that helps you feel better about the world, the one that makes you a better you. He might be the Jesus that helps you love and get all the things that Caesar Augustus had. Achieve the type of things that Caesar achieved. Or do you believe that he was a real person? And that the truth of who he was and what he did has nothing to do with what you want him to have done or have, uh, have been. He is who he said he is. He did what he says he did. What Luke says that he did. Is his birth, life, death, resurrection, is that your personal story? Or is that news? Something that happened. We live in a world that is changed because of Caesar Augustus. You can't decide whether or not you will live in the effects of the Roman Empire that existed thousands of years ago. You are just living in them. You cannot decide whether to live in a world where Jesus came and died and rose again. That's the world that you live in. And you have to reckon with the reality of that. If this is a true story, then understand reality and let it change you. Act on it. What he did turns our lives upside down. He changes the way that we understand the whole world. Allegiance to him will cost us the love of this world and its treasures, those things that once consumed us. But this is true history, and it comes with true promises. If these promises are true, if Jesus is really reigning, if he really did humble himself, if he was born in a manger and died for his people and saved them, if his kingdom will cover all of creation and last forever and ever, then only a fool would give anything less than the whole world to know him, to trust in him, would do anything less than throw away everything that they love to say, I will pursue this man even to death because it will be unto eternal life. Trust in Jesus, in who he really was and is and will be. And live with him forever in his kingdom. I'll close with Calvin's thoughts on our passage. We see what sort of beginning the, son, the life of the Son of God had and in what cradle he was placed. Such was his condition at his birth because he had taken upon him our flesh for this purpose that he might empty himself on our account. When he was thrown into a stable and placed in a manger and a lodging refused him among men, it was that heaven might be open to us, not as a temporary lodging, but as our eternal country and inheritance, and that angels might receive us into their abode. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that Jesus really did come, that we are not reading the myths that we enjoy hearing at Christmas, that we are reading the true history of the world. And we thank you that this true history is one in which you save your people. Thank you that Jesus did not want to be Caesar Augustus. We know he could have been a much greater one, a much more terrifying one. Thank you that Jesus came and humbled himself that he might serve and save us. Thank you that he is the lamb who was slain. And thank you that he is surely the one who rose from the dead, the lion who will reign forever. And I pray that as we recognize him in the manger, we would recognize him as our savior and we would trust in him and hold to him, not because of what we desire that he would be, but because of the much better news 
of who he is and what he promises. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.